Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser, and on this episode, I'm joined by musician Marty Ballantyne. Uh, I called this episode The Undeniable because it's a concept or a notion that comes up a bunch in the conversation, just the idea of music that you kind of can't deny its awesomeness. I'm sure many people will disagree with the examples we cite, and uh, those people should feel free to weigh in. And uh, and everyone uh, should feel free to weigh in. I love to hear from you in the comments of the podcast homepage or on the Facebook page. If you enjoy the podcast, please uh, take a moment to give us a rating, leave a review, and uh, pass it on to a friend or anyone you think might be interested. I want to briefly mention that at one point, Marty talks about my own music. He says some very nice things. Normally, when that comes up, in the conversations I edited out of the episode, because as much as I love receiving praise, it's just not really the point or the subject of this podcast. But uh, in this case, it was related to what we were talking about, so I left it in. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and we'll see you on the other side. So, uh, Marty Ballantyne, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, man. It's uh, it's nice. It's nice. It's good to hear your voice. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a really long time. Um, I we know each other through your ex, uh, Zoe Hopkins, who's an acclaimed filmmaker and a really good friend of mine. Yes. And uh, I remember the first time I met you because I came to either stay with you guys or visit you guys, and like I came into the apartment and the first thing I saw was the autobiography of Zoot Horn Rolo, the uh, guitar player for Captain Beefheart yes. and the Magic Band. Yeah, it's funny. And I was just like, well, this guy is totally cool. <laughs> <laughs> and we proceeded to just like talk for an hour about weird music. And uh, it's a good memory. Yeah, yeah. It's a good one for me too. It's funny you mentioned that book because I just picked it up recently and read a bunch of it again uh you know it's so fascinating bill harko is such a cool guitar player and uh and it's just the the, the story of that uh, of the music they made is just so fascinating and so yeah yeah it, i i feel like you know captain beefheart gets a lot of like uh i don't want to say lip service but like he he's he's a, a known figure in the history of of uh you know weird music but like that book, I've never seen that anywhere else except at your place. It's oh. not very well known. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I don't even know how I stumbled upon it, but uh, I'm just always scouring for that kind of stuff because I'm a sucker for, I guess I really love process and I love uh, rock bios that don't go into, like, I don't really care about the sex, drugs and rock and roll part. I just love when they talk about how they create the work. And so that, that, that book is definitely like that. Although they do get it. I mean, for that story, you need to get into sort of like the, the living with Captain Beefheart aspect of it and, and what that was like. But, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I've noticed that some of the, uh, the members of his band have sort of like tried to correct the historical record because he sort of had this narrative that like, he taught them how to play their instruments or something like that. And basically that they were just like instruments of his will. <laughs> and the, the musicians have over the years sort of come out and said, well, no, not really, actually. That's not really how it went down. Yeah. Well, the funny thing, though, is I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Like, obviously, these are uh, um, like very, very skilled people to just even be able to 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 do anything in that, you know, with what he was doing. But... All, at the same time, like I think uh, the the spirit of what comes through and just the vibe and the overall vision and all that, you you could never have had that without without him. So I think it's it's a meeting of you know in the middle somewhere. And one of the funny parts of that book is that uh, Bill Harkle Road talks about how they spent you know months and months and months in this house working on this music, and then after they made the record and they went out 
uh, he would go out and like go try and jam with people and he wouldn't know how because he couldn't play the blues anymore because he'd been so mm. conditioned and he'd been so in this bubble of making this incredibly unusual, complex, challenging music that he couldn't play straight blues after that for a long time. So I always thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, to, to what you were saying, like I was recently reading something by John French, who I think was the drummer. That's right. Yeah. Uh, on those, on that, on those Beefheart records, um, and uh, you know, he's sort of again, like, sort of pushing back against against the narrative that they were just kind of puppets, um, and talking about what they brought to the table musically and what they did. But then it, he does say at one point, like, you know he acknowledges that there was there was a genius behind you know beefheart himself and what he brought to the table so i thought well you know it's good that like at least that's acknowledged you you can understand how they would want to speak up for what they contributed absolutely for sure well i think he was the first transcriber i think like he was tasked with um with taking like sort of the raw i don't even remember how Beefheart presented what he what what he had in mind but uh it was uh Drumbo's job to to take all this material and somehow make it uh like interpret it so that they could actually play what he intended yeah yeah, yeah well it's uh it must have been a really challenging thing because I remember uh, you must be familiar with Gary Lucas yes uh who played with Beefheart later in his career Ice Cream for and, Crow I uh, think yeah uh-huh yeah, and uh, I saw I saw him him Gary Lucas play in the early '90s, and he told this great story that Beefheart gave him a, a tape of a song that he played on piano and asked him to to like uh, adapt it for guitar. Yeah, and and Gary Lucas was listening to it and said, "Well, Don, you know, like you're using all ten fingers. Like, <laughs> the, the guitar only has six strings." And his answer was, "Well, you better find another four. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's just um, <clears throat> the technical aspects or I guess the challenges are just, you know, uh, of no concern to somebody like him, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I read this great interview with Mark Mothersbaugh yeah. recently where he said he was comparing, you know, working as a, uh, as a commercial sort of contractor for these kind of corporate clients who sort of know what they want, but don't have the vocabulary to express it. And he was comparing it to like those beef heart musicians sort of trying to interpret a feeling or an idea with, with no uh, musical vocabulary behind it. Huh. And I thought that was a really generous way of looking at, you know, being a, you know, like working, doing client work as a, as a musical composer. That's cool. Anyway, moving on from Captain Beefheart, <laughs> I guess, uh, you've been, uh, I, I noticed that on Facebook, you have a long-standing project of the album a day. Right. Where you, you report on like an album that you've listened to. Do you do that every day? Yeah, well, the way, yeah, I do. Um, but uh, The only change I made is at the beginning of this year, which would be the start of the fourth year that I've done this, um, I decided that I wanted to, like, I used to, like, when I started, I would listen to an album every day, like, you know, Monday mm -hmm. through Sunday, every day I would pick a new record and I would listen to it all the way through. And after doing that for three years, uh, one thing I was missing was just spending more time with the record because sometimes, you know, so many records, as you well know, like, are, are you know, need more than like f just one playthrough of your time or two or three playthroughs. So I would, um... I decided at the beginning of this year that I would I would listen to a record as many days as I wanted to before I moved on to another one. Um, and, okay. and one of the first ones I did was like Get Happy by Elvis Costello because I'd never heard it before really. I like Elvis Costello. So I wanted to spend more than just like one day of listening to it. So that's the only change I've made. But yeah, I've been doing it for since the beginning of 2018. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what have you taken away from that process? 
Um, well, a bunch of things. You know, when I started, it was because I was doing these road trips, and I would always, I'd always bring CDs with me, and I'd put them on, and that's you know very different to the way people consume music nowadays, right? It's like, um, you know, for a while when iTunes was sort of where you got your music, it was like the singles because you could buy every song for a buck. And then when it's shifted to the streaming services, of course, that was the rise of the playlist, right? And yep. I mean, I, I, I love playlists at first because, I mean, you put whatever you want in it, you call it whatever you want, uh, you do your own sequencing. So it's like making your own albums. But then I started to miss the album and I realized that people were moving away from the album and the industry or what's left of the industry was sort of didn't care about albums anymore. And it was more about, oh, promote these playlists and promote the streaming service. And I just decided, you know, I want to listen intentionally and I want to, I want to really, really get into albums because there's still so many that I hadn't heard at that point. So I just thought, you know what, I'm going to listen to an album every day and I'm just going to do that. And it wasn't until maybe a couple months in that I thought, you know, I should share this just because it's like a daily activity I'm doing and it's fun. I really like it. And so I did. And then I was really surprised that people responded to it like a lot. And I would run into people at the like the grocery store, the gas station is like, hey, I listened to that album you posted today. I was like, well, what? You know, so then it became like this little thing where you had this these people that were interested to know what you were listening to and were curious what you were going to listen to next or uh, would suggest albums to you. So it's been, yeah, I think I'm on, I listened to Rocket to Russia most recently, and it was the uh, 1234th record. And so, you know, and I picked it pur- purposefully because it's like one, two, three, four, right? So. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I just, um, I, I, I have fun with it and I still, there's still so much, you know, I thought, I wondered at one point, am I going to run out of records? Because, you know, at some point you've listened to all the stuff that you're really interested in, but even 1200 records in, I still have stuff I want to hear all the time. So it it's turned into this thing that fed itself and it's really given me a, um, a deeper and more uh, a substantive appreciation for the album, even though I was a huge fan of albums before. And I've learned stuff yeah. about them, you know, like albums are, you know, 30 to 75 minutes long. And um, there's all these different choices that you can make in the creation of one. And just to, to be exposed to all the different ways people have chosen to make albums is is fascinating still fascinating to me yeah totally um i noticed that you listen to a lot of like pretty complex music i was a little surprised to see the ramones on there um I, but now i see the the, con- the concept of the one two three four <laughs> um but um are you uh, a fan I, I i end up talking about the ramones a lot on this podcast so, without really meaning to yeah I'm a huge fan of the Ramones. Um, and see, for me, when I was a kid, I lived in Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan, which is in northern Saskatchewan. It's where my family is from. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's the, literally the end of the road. You go up this road and, and basically you just got the river from there. And so it was gravel road, a small community, um, about a thousand people. And one year when I was like 11 or 12, they had the winter games in, in our community. Okay. So all the small communities are like in the, uh, not surrounding, but sort of in, in the north would come to Sandy Bay for a week and everybody like played volleyball and broom ball and, you know, all that stuff competed. And the kids would all stay in the, in the school. School would shut down for a week. And in the library, they had like a Betamax player with, I'm really dating myself by saying that, um, <laughs> with like six or seven recorded movies on cassette that you could go in and watch and for kids to entertain themselves. And one of the movies they had was Rock and Roll High School. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I found that. And at that point, I was such a sponge. When I was a kid, I just soaked up music wherever and however I could. And so I found out, here's a movie. The Ramones are in this movie. I had never really heard the Ramones. But I watched that movie, I counted 16 times that week. I would just Whoa. go to the library every chance I could and I'd watch it again and I'd watch it again. And I, I, for my money, the, the concert sequence in that movie is one of the best uh, filmed live sequences ever, ever in anything. I, uh, I agree completely. And I, I, how old were you when that happened? Uh, 11, I think. Okay, wow. See, I was like 16, I think. And I had a similar, well, not, not a similar story of discovering it, but... I remember, I think my brother was watching the movie and he said, Malcolm, you have to come see this. And I came in 
when the Ramones concert sequence was starting. And it was honestly like a life-changing experience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the movie itself is, you know, it's, it's goofy. Uh, it's fun. I remember my dad said that he thought we were watching a porno movie because the <laughs> acting was so bad, or the dialogue was so bad. But, you know, they had some Warhol superstars in there, Mary Warren. Well, yeah, and Paul Bartel, Paul right? Paul Bartel. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that, that sequence is amazing. And I, I, I recently read the Marquis Ramon autobiography. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't yet, no. Oh, you got to check it out. If you're yeah. a fan, it's, it, it's a must. And because he joined the band, like, not too long before that, he talks a lot about the making of Rock and Roll High School and the Phil Spector album and it's just you know it's all gold yeah yeah uh, get, getting his perspective on on things uh, just that such a fascinating band like i've read a lot about them uh since then and it's just you know you can't believe that that, that a group of people with all of these you know peculiarities and whatever um could actually make anything much less something so brilliant but i guess that's how bands work really it, um uh, yeah, I fell in love with them so, so hard at that age, and uh, you know, got into uh, you know, got into a bunch of their stuff, and then I was able to score like a copy of the first record in Rocket to Russia um, on vinyl when I was a kid. So I wore those out, and yeah, I've always been a huge fan. Never saw them live. I was always bummed about that, but um, yeah, big big. Fan. I saw them live a couple of times in the early '90s, but it was like after DD quit. So somehow it feels like it wasn't the full experience but it was still it was pretty amazing you know, I, in, in its own way i bet i bet like i just yeah i look back and i see this stuff and they were just they were a machine like they were just this machine johnny seemed to turn them into a machine and it was just there was no fooling around with those guys yeah, yeah. well i believe me i could go on i just said in the last episode that this could just be a ramones podcast but uh, <laughs> i try to try to broaden this the the spectrum a little bit yeah um so like, but I guess why I was surprised is because you seem to listen to a lot of like complex, complicated music and, and yet the Ramones is kind of the opposite of that. Uh, do you find that like, it's a, you, you like to get some balance in there? I think balance works itself out sort of naturally because um, I just listen really, you know, I mean, honestly, I'm a super nerd, so I keep track of everything I listen to. And so I'll look and see if I've listened to this or that as I'm going through and sometimes I pre-plan and that I'll you know I'll lay out a week of records ahead of time so I don't have to think about it on the day but really it's all on whim it's just all on interest you know I'll I'll get an interest in a certain type of music or a certain era or a certain artist and I'll just go deep for a while um, I'll jump around just you know, by whim I'll pick days that are um, you know like this album was released on this day that kind of thing just everywhere okay. and anywhere um, I'm curious, like, which artists you, you, you're you can referring to complex? Because I know there's some stuff I listen to that, that's like that. But, like, what do you, what do you uh, refer to? I mean, I just, I guess just, like, a lot of the, the technical metal mm. um, kind, of, kind of stuff. Yeah. That's funny because um, I don't know what's happened with me, but in the last six months to a year, I've really... Extreme metal has almost become, like, the default for me, which is really odd because I, I've always loved metal. Um, but I've never really, it's never really been sort of the, the, the homepage of my listening, but for the last six months to a year, something's happened. There was a shift and I'm just fascinated by that whole world because, uh, I don't know how, how well you know that world, but there's so much subgenre, there's so much niche, there's so much going on everywhere, like in terms of the world, but also in terms of the, the styles and the little nuances. And you can just go down rabbit holes all day, every day. Uh, you know, if yeah. I wanted to, I could listen to just extreme metal records for a year, <clears throat> never touch the same two artists, and just go all over the place in terms of uh, what the, the artists are doing. So I find it fascinating. And I like five years ago, I was listening to extreme metal only when I went to the gym. But now okay. I listen to, I don't know, I find out about a band and I get interested. That leads me to another one and that leads, leads me to another one. And um, yeah, it's just, so in terms of technical or challenging music, that's probably mostly extreme metal. And um, honestly, the last month or two, it's been probably a quarter to a third of what I listen to. So do you have a sense of, of why you've gotten so into it recently? Well, 
I, I'm not sure about recently, but I know that I've always been interested in the vanguard, um, like the cutting edge of whatever, like of, of, of metal. Like I remember in the 80s, um, 85, 86, something like that, uh, hearing Metallica for the first time, uh, the album Master of Puppets and the song Battery. Mm -hmm. And Battery at that time was so heavy because it was fast, it was aggressive, uh, it was just, it, you know, it was this blur of intensity and I'd never heard anything like it before. And, um, so that's when I really got interested in, okay, like what's the heaviest thing that exists at this moment in time? Like what's the heaviest thing people are doing? And over the years, obviously like it updates and it updates. It's always because people are always finding a way to push it further. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that from Metallica, then you get to Slayer, then from Slayer, you get to like the early death metal and grindcore and then black metal. And it just keeps going. And I guess that's part of what fascinates me about metal is how it just never seems to, there never seems to be a limit. And so, yeah. so I've always had that interest. And then recently, I just think I've, um, I think, do you know about Banger? You know, Banger, the, the, the company in Toronto that does, um, uh, uh, all the classifying content relating to metal. Yes. So yes, I do. Yeah. So I'm kind of a fan of that. I love the movies. I, I like the series they did and they have like a channel on YouTube where they have that, uh, like ongoing sort of reviews of music and discussions about music. And that's kind of started the started, I think, fueling this interest. And then it just becomes, um, self-perpetuating at some point, because like I say, like, um, you'll hear a band and you'll go, wow. And then, you know, because of thanks to Spotify and things like that, that'll refer you to other things. And then that leads you to other areas. And so I just follow them now. And uh, yeah. I just never run out. It just was one after another. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a fascinating thing. I mean, you asked earlier, I don't know that much about it, but I'm very curious about it. I find it really fascinating. I mean, you mentioned Metallica. It's, I think it's hard for anyone younger to to really understand or conceive this of just how heavy and badass and like downright threatening they were uh you know back in the 80s absolutely like because now they're just kind of like an institution and they've put out you know a number of questionable albums at this point <laughs> and like they they had that documentary which is amazing but also just makes them look like they've completely lost the plot. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they, they were, you know, it, it was like, it was like frightening to, 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 to hear Metallica in those first few albums. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my brother was really into it. He was a metalhead. I was kind of like turned off by how extreme it was, which just sounds funny now because now when you hear <laughs> that stuff it just it sounds dated it's still great but it doesn't you know it's been superseded a hundred times over in in heaviness yeah um but i mean i yeah i was kind of like put off by it but at the same time it's kind of undeniable like those first four albums like you can't really front on on the heaviosity of them no and just like and just the just everything about it like artistic integrity and just the purity of it the purity of the vision and like the clear you know it's clear you know like it's really direct like there's no futzing around you know it yep. just hits you and you know like i don't like say kill them all as much as i do master of puppets but i mean it's, i'll still put it on i still love it and it's still great so yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm I'm still a fan of that stuff, and like I say, I'm, I'm I'm a bit surprised too that it's it's become such a big part of my listening lately. But uh, there's just so much to hear, I guess, in that music mm -hmm. for me still, and I'm still fascinated by how you can be so incredibly heavy and and have that be such a big part of like why you exist as a band. But you can also explore so much interesting sonic territory, and there's still so much you can do with all of that. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm still I'm still really into that. Um, you you talked about the subgenres, and that's something that's always uh, really intrigued me in metal and uh, and in and in other genres is this need for really specific classification. Yeah, and uh, I think you know maybe it's more when you're young, or I don't know, but like people are just like, no, I don't like this, you know, incredibly precise type of music. I only like this incredibly precise 
Yeah, genre is a funny thing, you know. I, I think about genre a lot because um, I think that where people maybe uh, uh, make a mistake with genre is when they identify too much with one, you know, because they feel like then you get co-opted, right? Um, mm -hmm. I've got this sort of uh, idea that I bounce around in my head about how you shouldn't uh, carry anyone's bags, right? And you shouldn't have... What do you mean? Uh, well, well, I'll tell you. Uh, and you shouldn't have anyone carry your own. So... Um, and how that relates to genre is like, you shouldn't carry anyone's bags. What I mean by that is, um, um, you know, all like in the world, people are always trying to persuade you of things, right? Um, when you're a teenager, it's peer pressure. When you get older, you get marketed to, um, and you know, you see, and people end up in these situations where they identify with something and, uh, they make it a part of sort of their identity, but they're being co-opted. For example, like you're a coffee drinker. Well, I'm a Tim's drinker, you know, I'm made in Canada or no, I, I, am a Starbucks guy. And, and with beer brands, it's the same. And with, um, sports teams, you know, people are like, I'm a Canadians mm -hmm. fan. I'm a this fan. Uh, and they wear the colors and they're proud of it, but you know, they're, they're carrying the flag for somebody else. They're kind of carrying someone else's bags or they're, they're sort of you know, furthering someone else's agenda. And where it really is problematic with music is that somebody would be like, well, I'm a country fan. Well, that's cool if you like that. But, you know, um, it doesn't have to be at the expense of other types of music, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. I think music, I always find it weird when people really, really are like, I like this, I don't like that. Like, I love classic rock, I hate rap. I remember, I don't know if you remember, but in like the 80s and 90s, you'd run into lots of people that sort of really flew the flag of, I hate rap music. They would, you know, declare that. I ran into yeah. a lot of people like that. And I could never identify with it because even at that age, I had been exposed to Public Enemy and uh, uh, the Fresh Prince and Run DMC. And like, I thought it was super cool. So I think you end up carrying someone up once someone's bags when you limit your listening by genre, when you identify too much with like, oh, I only listen to this type of music. And like that, you know, punks, metalheads, everything, right? Um, yeah. But I think genre where it's good for a music fan is like if you use it as a tool, right? So like in metal, you know, like the subgenre uh, uh, distinctions are useful because, okay, what's death doom? I mean, you say that and that's like a subgenre that's popular. Um, okay. And, you know, so it's, it's doom metal, but it's also death metal. So what does that sound like that just, you know, it sparks the imagination and then you go off and explore that. What's black metal and then what's modern black metal and what's black gaze and like all these. So if you use it as a tool for exploration, then it's awesome. But if mm. you allow someone to sort of plant their logo on you, well then, I don't know. I don't think that's so awesome then. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always been like pretty resistant to the, you know, to the, the idea of, of genres or like I, I, to put it another way, like there's a part of me that thinks that kind of excessive subcategorization is kind of silly. Yeah. Um, but, but you, you, you know, at the same time, you can't deny that it's part of the human character to want to make these categorizations. Yeah. And, uh, and furthermore, like it's very difficult, um, for artists to find an audience when they are not, or to put it another way, it's a lot easier to find an audience when you're squarely in a genre than when you fall between the lines. Well, and you're getting at something really important about genre, I think, which is that a lot of times it's just about commo commodification, right? It's about monetization of music. And it has nothing mm -hmm. to do with the quality of music or appreciating music or anything. Like it, it's just about getting the music sold. So the business part of the music. Yeah. Well, I suppose, I mean, you, you, you know about that because you were, your band, you were on a major label band for a number of years, right? I was, yeah. We got signed in 2001 and we were pretty active. It was EMI Music Canada was who signed our band. And um, we were on the label till, like, I don't know, I guess technically we could still be on the label, but we were active from 2001 to 2005 with EMI. And yeah, I mean, I, I learned a little bit about commodification and about being sold and stuff, which was interesting, I guess. I'm sure. Uh, what what uh, what did you what did you learn? Uh, there was a lot of little things, you know. Like, I mean, you learn that uh, you know 
you're not you're not a big deal, really. <laughs> it's funny because at the on the one end, the uh, the industry or you know the label that signs you takes interest in you and they think you're great and you know they get behind you and it's rah rah rah. But then on the other hand, you know you're just this grain of sand on this massive beach, right? Um, hoping to be sure. noticed, hoping to glisten in the sun enough that someone will notice you. Um, and I always remember like our A and R guy when we were making uh, our second record with them uh saying to me look i mean look on the bright side it's like nobody's waiting for a new breach of trust album <laughs> which i always thought was awesome but really you know like sort of humbling at the same time right um you learn about uh, like how so much of it has nothing to do with music and i guess that's the commodification part you know making music videos i mean it has nothing to do with music right it's attaching this visual that you'll like making a commercial basically um, mm-hmm. all of the, uh, uh, exposure, like, and the attention, you know, all of the press and the interviews and stuff. I mean, it's all, I don't know. It's just, it was fun and fascinating. Um, but kind of weird too. Uh, I mean, I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. It was a great experience. Um, you find out that the people that are, your band is being marketed to are, 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 much younger especially for us at the time we were a rock band and i was like 31 when that record came out um and then you'd go play these shows we'd, we'd get to play these shows uh with lots of kids there and it was kids it was like people half my age were in the front row and that was kind of weird um yeah no doubt yeah so there's all these little things right um and you know you're in your bubble and, and all these things are happening outside you so it was it was uh yeah I don't know so much. So much I learned, I guess, but uh, I just look back at it as an adventure. It was an adventure. Yeah, yeah. So you guys were were your band Breach of Trust was it, it wasn't uh, exactly metal, but it was sort of adjacent to that world, right? It was like a sort of alternative rock uh, band. Would you say? I would say like one of my favorite bands even now is Faith No More, and I would say that that's a probably like I, I can't sing nearly as good as Mike Patton. And we probably don't hit, we never hit as hard as them probably at their hardest. But, you know, it's like, I guess at the time people were saying like alt metal and things like that. And so, it, yeah, it wasn't straight metal. Um, and it, But it was influenced by uh, punk rock to a degree and definitely all like the quote unquote alternative bands of the time. Uh, we were into like our common interests musically were stuff like Faith No More, probably Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. That kind of stuff, the kind of stuff, like so that probably influenced a lot by that '90s alternative stuff that was heavy, um, mm-hmm. but wasn't metal, right? Like, it, like all the metalheads in the in the '90s loved Soundgarden, but they weren't a metal yeah. band. And so, I guess in the same way, we were kind of like that, where like metalheads would get into it, but we weren't strictly a metal band. No, I mean you guys were more melodic, I would say. Yeah, well, there was there was definitely melody was central to it because I couldn't do like the aggressive vocals. Our guitar player we had could do that stuff, and so he would in some of the songs. But it was melodic, and I remember just influences that nobody would ever be able to pick out, like so, like a band Shudder to Think. You remember them? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was listening to them a lot in like the mid '90s, and I just loved them. And so some of the there's a few off kilter things on our record songs for dying nations. And they were influenced by bands like that. And like, nobody'd probably ever pick that out, but that's a lot of what I was listening to at the time. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, you know, you guys didn't, um, you guys didn't play this up per se, but like when I looked at the, the, the record cover the other day, like breach of trust songs for dying nations, it seemed like you guys were talking about some, you were ahead of ahead of your time a bit and talking about some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, well, see that that leads back to influences too because um, when we were starting the band, it was like the early to mid '90s. We were in Northern Saskatchewan. Nobody was like there was nobody in our community, which was this place, Laurent, just like a town of five thousand people uh, that I lived mm-hmm. in for ten years, and nobody was um, writing music. So we were on our own there. We were in this little isolated sort of circumstance and we all started writing this music and then no definitely nobody was making that kind of music there at the time like which is like the early stuff was more like um imakai from fugazi call, uh, compared it to the obsessed so it was like sort of like that like sledgier a bit 
Um, okay. Um, yeah. So when we were making our, our our first music, I was I was tasked with writing the lyrics, and I was at first I had no idea how to write lyrics. I didn't know what I wanted to write about. But at the same time, I was listening to bands like the Dead Kennedys and Minor Threat, uh, Fugazi, the Bad Brains, um, Black Flag. And what all those bands had in common to me, one of the things was that they all had a very specific worldview that they put mm-hmm. into their lyrics. You know, <clears throat> for the uh, Flag, it was like anti-authority. And for the Dead Kennedys, it was like this sort of liberal lefty sort of uh, v- like, uh, viewpoint that was sort of steeped in like the West Coast. Uh, mm-hmm. For the Bad Brains, it was like positive mental attitude, Rastafari stuff. Uh, you know, so they all had this really specific worldview. It was rooted in their in their in their background or their community. And so I thought to myself, well, we're Indigenous people. We're from up northern Saskatchewan. Nobody really knows about this part of the country. We could sing about that. I could write about that. Mm. So it was incredibly empowering to me because I was like, wow, I can take what those bands are doing and do like my version of that and just explore that area. And so that that's what led me to write all those songs. And um, it was, I guess it was serious. Uh, I wouldn't say it was political, but it was sort of like social or whatever. And I just thought, okay, well, that's my area, you know, what it means to be indigenous in your 20s and 30s or whatever at this point in time. And so it would just give me the jumping off point for all the different things, you know, Um, explorations of interpersonal relationships and dysfunction or um, just anything, right? So Mm -hmm. it was fertile ground and it just gave me a a point of orientation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you guys... uh I remember, like, you talked about alternative rock from the 90s, and I have this memory of when I met um, a bunch of your musician friends, uh, I realized that we had this kind of, like, schism, even though we had we had bonded on on Captain Beefheart and some other things, <laughs> that, like, you and a lot of your, your musician buddies were, like, pretty into the red hot chili peppers <laughs> and 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 i i had to i had to like confront like uh like a, some mixed feelings about that in, in in myself yeah um because you know i can say now because i don't really care about looking cool or whatever that i that i loved that band when i was in high school yeah um and uh you know in a certain way you know you you they're um you know, you can't really deny uh, their appeal. You know, they've been around a, a long time, and I have some young friends and family who who love them, and they love their later stuff too, which is interesting. You don't. There's not a lot of bands that have been around for a long time who people want to hear their their recent stuff. It's true. Um, but at the same time, like. There's something pretty pretty cheesy about what they do as well. Oh yeah. Um, can can you can you uh, can 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 you talk a bit about like how, what role they that band has played for you? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know what role they've played. Uh, I've really yeah, I've really dug them a lot over the years. Um, you know, in the last five ten years, I've come and gone with them more and more. Um, and obviously, like I've become more uh, sort of put off by the cheesier elements. Like one thing I just hate about the Chili Peppers is when uh, Anthony Kiedis will go into like nonsensical, scatty kind of, (laughs) I just hate that. I'm like, man, for a guy who purports to be so into like lyrics and writing words, you couldn't come up with like 15 more words for that song, you know? (laughs) And like to this day, I'll hear Around the World from Californication on the radio and he gets to that bing, bang, bang, bang. And I'm just like, what are you doing? What is that? It's so (laughs) stupid, you know? Um, But at the same time, you know, it's still, it's also the band that like, I mean, when they groove uh, together, those three guys, they groove so hard and so in a way unlike anybody else. And when Kiedis does show up and writes words and they're good ones, then uh, I appreciate that. I think I was, yeah, I think I was, I don't know how they influenced me, but I just, I, I really appreciated the band dynamic that they had, that all four of them contributed uh, and I was fascinated by, I think, the, the musical relationship between Flea and John Frusciante. I think I really liked that. Just how how in tune with each other they seem to be. 
Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's things I appreciated about them, but as I've gotten older, there's definitely the cheese ball parts of it have, have graded on me way more. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I know what you mean. Of course. Uh, have you ever heard the, the John Frusciante solo albums that he, he put out a series of solo albums at a certain point? Yeah, no, I've stayed up on that. I like, like being like the super fan, like 25 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. Um, I remember when he put his first solo album out after he left the Chili Peppers for the first time and I still have it on CD somewhere. And I was just fascinated by how weird and just out of it it was, but at the same time, super interesting and compelling and how much you could, an artist could do with just a four track. It was really, really cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I have probably seven or eight of those records. Um, and I, I was really, I was following it really actively when he left the band the second, or no, when he rejoined the band and then he made like six or eight records in a row. I followed all those and bought a bunch of them. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I, I don't I'm not sure if I know where the albums I've heard fit in that chronology. Yeah. But I I discovered them um in a weird way that's like too long a story to tell, but <laughs> like um I was kind of amazed when I heard of them because some of them are like, you know, just kind of experimental noodling and th- that's cool and everything, but then in the middle of it, he'll just drop these incredibly beautiful songs yeah and it made me go okay wait a second like it just made me reevaluate the whole red hot chili peppers band and i was like okay if i look at it on a chart like everything they do that's great is kind of attributable to him i think so yeah and when he's not in the band it's like not good yeah you know absolutely like he's he's a rare he's a really rare cat like he's you're absolutely right like i root for them when he leaves but you know like the dave navarro record they made in the 90s it's not as good it's different and then when he left in 2007 or whatever then the records they made with josh klinghoffer okay but definitely they're missing something and it's just that whatever he brings to it yeah i mean it's like the 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 riffs, the the playing, but also like that melodic sensibility. Yeah. Um, I just like, when I heard those solo records, suddenly a tune like under the bridge was like, oh wait, like all that guitar playing, all those backing vocals, that's like all him. Yeah. Like bringing that beauty to, to, to the, to the song. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was, it was, it was pretty interesting. So you said you were into them when in high school, but then you, you, I guess you grew to hate them at some point. So I'm, wh- what caused the shift or why did you like them then? And you didn't like them after? I'm curious about that. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question. Uh, um, I, uh, I, I, I think that, uh, the record, it's like mother's milk. Yeah. Like that's kind of an undeniable record in a way. Right. Totally. Like, I mean, it's 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 kind of hard to, to uh, you know again it's kind of like when we were talking about Metallica being so heavy like at that time like today if you say like funk punk it sounds like totally corny <laughs> but like at the time like whether it was bands like Fishbone or oh, like yeah. they were there were bands who could combine those two elements yeah. in a really uh, compelling way yeah and um, I don't know they were just like you know. Flea as a bassist, like that rhythm section was really great. And uh, they also had like, they had a cool image. I mean, it's, you know, you don't listen to music for that now, but as a teenager, you know, they would turn up in movies, like I see the movie Thrashin'. It's like an 80s skateboard (laughs) movie. I think Josh Brolin is a teenage Josh Brolin is the star actually. Like there's a part where they go to like a badass party and like the, a weird band is performing and it's the red hot chili peppers. Wow. I didn't you know? know about that. I've never seen that thrashing. Check it out. I'm going um, to. And then, you know, I guess if I'm being really honest, like it's not, it's not very like cool to say, but I think they just, they got, they got too popular. I was a bit too much of a hipster snob <laughs> to like admit that I, that I liked them. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm just being, I'm just being real. Totally, totally. With you and with anyone listening. Um, You know, I, I was getting really into uh, weird music, underground music, and I just 
it became part of my identity to uh to you know hate anything that was that was popular yeah but yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a total deception well it's like a self a self-deception too it's funny you say that because um one of my favorite memories of you and it's such a like i just love this memory is like i went to a show of yours and uh, with zoe my ex uh in vancouver i don't know what year this was you might know i don't and you were playing with canned ham it was the world provider uh-huh. and canned ham and um you were performing and you were on stage and you were just i think you had a ukulele did you used to play with the ukulele i think that mark haney like made me like a small <laughs> guitar or ukulele just for me to like break apart in oh. the sh- at that show okay so so you're on stage and you're just going and going and it was really high energy and then you i picked up this ukulele and you strummed it or whatever for a bit and then all of a sudden you pause like you didn't know what to do for a second and you just winged it off to the side and i could almost hear like a cartoon sound effect like whoop <laughs> <laughs> And then you just kept going and God, I was just, I was so into it. But at that same show, uh, I remember you did either part or all of uh, Beautiful by Christina Aguilera. And Uh it was such a good version of it. I was just like, damn, man, this is so cool. So as much as maybe you had the hipster sort of uh, self-identity or veneer, I mean, you still obviously appreciated undeniably good, uh, well-written pop music. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when I talk about being a hipster snob, that's like a, a period of time, say from like age, I don't know, like 18 to, to 21 or something like that. Yeah. And and uh, and definitely by the time that you saw that show in Vancouver. And, and thank you, by the way, I'm glad that you uh, appreciated that. I, I seem to remember that like, OK, well, I mean, that song came out and I heard it and I was just like, okay, this is just a great song, period. I yep. didn't know who did it or anything like that. And then later I found out that, uh, that Linda Perry wrote it, who's like a, you know, a, a, yep. a pop songwriter in LA. Um, and I actually heard this story that like, she was like demoing songs for Christina Aguilera and, and Christina was like, okay, what else you got? And Linda Perry was like, well, she didn't really have anything else, but she had this sort of sketch of a song, which is beautiful. And she was like, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I don't have anything else. So I'll just start playing this. And Christina's just like, yep, I'll take that one. And she was like, uh, well, no, it's kind of a personal. She was like, I'll take that one. (laughs) I'm totally (laughs) paraphrasing this story from memory, but it was like a song that was totally personal and she didn't think of as something she was going to sell commercially. But, you know, Christina Aguilera had the ear to see that like, it would be a could be a huge hit. Yeah. So it's kind of it's you know it's an interesting example of how there isn't necessarily like a a hard distinction between like deeply personal music and like commercial music. Right. Um, but anyway, I just love that song. It's like there's no there's no ifs ands or buts about it. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I for for a while there I would perform it on stage, um, and uh, you know that was at a time when like you know i've talked about this on the show before too but like there's times when commercial pop music is just kind of um undeniably great yeah and you can be a grump or a or a snob about it but like you could also just enjoy it and appreciate it yeah um and uh yeah, I can't remember whether it was at that show in Vancouver or at a show in Toronto, but there was some time when I was playing that song and I was like, oh, I don't feel like the audience is really feeling it. But I I, I like that you appreciated it at any rate. Oh, totally. Totally. It was really good. Well, because I love the song too, right? So I just, uh, it was just, it was funny because you didn't, I think part of why I liked it so much in that moment was it was just unexpected. And so I loved the curveball and I loved just where it went. And yeah, it was good. It was really good. Uh, well, thanks, Marty. I, uh, you know, I, um, I, I like to throw curveballs. I think it's, uh, it's good to keep people on their toes, you know? Absolutely. Well, that's one thing. One of the things I love about your music is that it's just like you'll do like these from what I, I like. I haven't heard all of it, but I've heard, you know, a, a bunch of it. Um, like the, the melodic turns you'll take, like the song you did with Feist. Um, mm-hmm. I just love like how like you would do your verse, then she does her verse. And then when you come back in, it's so dramatic the way you come back in vocally. 
And I'm just like, man, it was Valentine. That's, that's, that's the song, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, I love those surprising moments because it just, uh, it's part of what makes music exciting is like the violation of expectations or something coming out of left field <laughs> that you don't expect, right? And yeah, so, yeah, it's totally. one thing I really appreciate what, about what you do. Well, you know, um, I, I appreciate that a lot, man. Um, it's, uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Um, so, so you're from, from Northern Saskatchewan and yep. you were in, in Vancouver for a number of years. Um, and now you're based in Ottawa. Yeah. Yeah. I live on the Quebec side, but yeah, I'm in the Ottawa region now. Yep. Okay. And, uh, and what are you, um, what are you doing there? I've been a program officer at the Canada Council for the Arts for, for almost three years here. So that's my, that's my, I have a day job. That's what I do. Right. Yep. And so like, are you, are, is it involved with music? You know, the funny thing is I work with media artists. I work with uh, film filmmakers and film-based artists or moving images-based artists rather than okay. musicians. I do help uh, a little bit, just a little bit here and there with uh, uh, things, but with music, but most, if, for the most part, it's, it's media artists. And are you... Uh, are you still playing music much? Um, you know, I, yeah, I play music still quite a bit. Um, obviously, with uh, the pandemic and everything, I haven't played a show. Last show I played was in February last year, um, right before everything shut down. But I, I've been writing music a lot over the last three or four years with uh, Zane, who was the original bass player in Breach of Trust. Um, him and I reconnected mm, like, like five years ago, I guess. And then about four years ago, we started writing music together. So we've been just doing that ongoing um, uh, since then. And uh, Dean is involved as well. He was the guitar player in Breach of Trust uh, for our last record. So okay. So yeah, the so three of us. Yeah. Is Breach of Trust still still a going concern, or is it just you, you guys are are still continuing to work on in a different? project or a different idea well we never said we never said it broke up so it just you know it, it was there was never any resolution to it um but you know the three i mean especially zane and i we, i mean we wrote you know we we were the uh, co-writers on a lot of the stuff on the on the first record and even on the second record after he left there was some music that he co-wrote um but you know we're not at the point where we're going to put it out yet we're still trying to figure out you know how we want to approach it and what we want to do um, so there's no name for it at this point. We're just, uh, we're just working, but you know, there's been talk about, is it breach of trust or not? And I guess it's a question we're still asking ourselves because there's other people that were in the band that aren't involved at this point. So, right. but it's been really, really fun just doing it ongoing with Zane and, uh, he's a great person to co-write with and we have a mutual respect. And then Dean's like not as much involved in the writing. He is involved, but not as perhaps forcefully as Zane and I, but it's great you know, working with him too. So, yeah, I, I, I find that like, if, if you can keep the, the connections alive from people you have deep background experience with, then there's just a whole lot you don't need to get out of the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like just, you can just find that connection. It's, it's always there. Totally. Well, yeah. And, and Zane and I just picked up where we left off, you know, like we, I mean, he's a different person. He's older. I'm a different person. I'm older, but there was so much shorthand, so much, we, you're right. We didn't have to talk about. And it was really cool. Like going to, like he lives in Calgary and I was living in Saskatoon before I moved here. And so he would come up or I would go down uh, or they would come up and I would go down. And like, you know, like the first time I, I, I stayed at his house again, uh, you know, I just like, it just felt so like, yeah, this is normal. This is natural. We've done this for so long, even though we hadn't really hung out for 15 years. It just, we took up where we left off and it was just, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate yeah. things about him that I probably didn't as much back then. And I think the huh. same is true of him. I, he caught me off guard uh, when we were working on, we did some music, uh, we recorded a couple songs in the summer of 2019 in Calgary, like did like sort of finished versions of a couple songs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in the lead up to it, we were talking about what we were going to be doing. And he said, out of the blue one day, he said, so uh, is my favorite guitar player going to play a solo on this song? And I'm like, he would never have said anything like that back in the day. And I never knew that, you know, that he felt that way. But we're mm -hmm. just, now that we're older, I guess there's less BS and we're able to sort of be more open about just, you know, things. So yeah. it's super cool. It's really, really good. Yeah, I love that about, you know, when when the 
when the connection is there, it's always there. And and then when you don't have your sort of like youthful bluster, when that's out of the way, it yeah. can be a, can be a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's really good. So you talked about, you know, genre and the sort of silliness of, you know, claiming one genre or not the other. Uh, are there any genres that you that you can't get into no matter how hard you try or are you totally open-minded? You know, yeah. um, I've still never been able to crack the opera nut. I just, because Mm. I think it's so foreign to me even now. Like I never grew up with it. You know, like it was never anywhere near, like I never heard it growing up. I never was exposed to it as I got older. Um, I just like culturally, I guess it's very foreign to me. Mm -hmm. So something like opera, like I've heard, from people oh it's beautiful because of the voices and just you know the drama but it's just never been a genre i've been able to find a way into um uh classical i like i really like but i think i'm like you i heard you on a podcast talking about how it's hard to get in because you don't know which work to listen to and then you don't know uh which version of which work to listen to right i'm the same way yeah like i, I yeah it's true yeah i need kind of like a a guide yeah yeah, it's a hard one to break down. So, um, so I dip my toe in, but I don't know a lot about it. Um, and then yeah, I found that. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I read this book called "The Rest Is Noise" by Alex Ross, and it's a basically a book about like 20th century classical music. Yeah. And about halfway through the book, I was like, "Hang on a second! Like, I have Spotify. Like, I can just, you know, he mentions a composer or a work. I can just like." look it up and listen to it as I'm, as I'm reading about it. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was a cool way to, to discover some things. It's still like, th- there's a challenge there. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged person. I don't have all the time in the world yeah. uh, to, uh, so I'm kind of like, okay, you know, tell me what, someone show me the guideposts here. Yeah, totally. Totally. So yeah, I mean, like, like I did classical music, but again, it's sort of hard to figure out where to go. Um, I have to admit, like, out of new music, like I say, like I listen to the uh, extreme metal stuff a lot, and I explore that mm-hmm. part of the world. I'm really not tuned into pop music at all these days. Um, you know, like I, I've sort of, I guess, our access to music nowadays is such that we can personally tailor it to, uh, tailor it to our interests a lot, mm-hmm. and so I've yeah. completely zo- tuned out like music that you know, say it happens incidentally or like happens in public spaces. Like, you know, I'll listen to the radio sometimes, but I I won't spend two seconds if a song is on that I'm not interested in. And I I avoid it in like the stores and stuff like that. So the only time I really hear stuff that I don't want to is when I, I'm just in a situation where I can't really avoid it, but you know, I just tune it out. So a lot of the stuff that's new in contemporary pop music, I just, I, I couldn't tell you like a Taylor Swift song and I know she's not even the newest artist, but like I couldn't pick out a song by her on the radio, Justin Bieber. Like I know what Drake sounds like because to me, a lot of his stuff just sounds very similar, but um, I guess I'm just not as interested or, or concerned about what is happening in that part of the world musically anymore. Yeah. I, I uh, I'm up, up at a, at a cottage right now and we have this, radio that's like permanently tuned to the one station we can pick up from <laughs> vermont and it's like a top 10 pop station yeah and so like whenever i'm here i listen to it almost as a research project ah. to 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 get some idea of what's popular and they play the same songs over and over again so after a while it's like, like okay well i'll look this up see what it is and uh, yeah i mean it's it's strange like it's it's hard not to sound like an old man when you <laughs> when you say oh there's nothing nothing good on the radio yeah. any not like when i was a kid yeah and yeah, even yeah. like you know you were talking about something like you know christina aguilera's beautiful like that was a huge mainstream pop song and i wasn't that young when it came out but i was able to recognize that i feel like you know the changes in technology and the fact that everything is uh, or, or so much is recorded like inside the box mm. right now mm-hmm. means that there's there's so little air mm. or space in the songs. Mm-hmm. It's like between auto-tune, the loudness wars, right. and, and this lack of space. It's just like everything feels like a kind of flatlined um, 
you know, continuous loud sound. Um, yeah. It, it lacks dynamics. And, uh, but then everyone now and then you get, you get a good song. I mean, there's a, there's a hit song right now by Dua Lipa. Mm. Yep. Um, and she, she does, she seems to like sample a lot of, uh, disco in her music kind of like it's like she's sort of taking daft punk's uh <laughs> random access memories and trying to yeah. like do a sort of like uh i don't know a bit more like popped up or a bit like lower effort version of that um and i love disco so i'm always happy to hear that but when i hear the songs i'm always like yeah it's cool but like i just w- wish there was a little something more like whether it's just like a little subtle chord change under the melody or just like, just like something a little more musical, uh, in these songs. But I guess it's just me or, or, or being old. Well, yeah, I think all of that plays into it. Um, I think definitely when you get older, like you, you know, you become less sort of concerned about certain things or maybe less susceptible to things like, um, I think not for nothing that most music, uh, that's popular is marketed to younger people because mm-hmm. I think, I think th- those that are marketing it know that after a certain age, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't land like the effort doesn't land. So there's no point in really doing it. Um, but at the same time, I think like, I think about that a lot too, what you say about how, you know, I'm just an old man and about how, you know, when you get older, you're like in my day, we, you know, um, which I don't think yep. is valid. Like I, I, I fight against that too. And, but I think part of it is like the shifting sands of time. Like I think music changes over time. Um, I listened to a podcast recently and they talked about how it's sort of tracked by decade, how pop music changed and about how, um, the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, sort of pop music template has only been popular for, you know, a while, like it, it's only had its day for a while and now it's day may be over and maybe the new forms are different. And, you know, a lot of popular songs now don't even have choruses. They have hook lines, right? Mm. Which are like a much more simplified sort of version of a chorus, I guess. And so that's, I think, part of it too, because, you know, you and I being of a certain generation and of a certain point in time, probably appreciate something like a traditional pop, like songwriting formula and if there's not as much of that in the music nowadays, then obviously we're, we're not going to uh, maybe uh, connect with it as much, right? Yeah. But yeah. yeah. But I do feel that like it's interesting to see how uh, there's a lot of sampling still that goes on in, in, in pop music. And I, I, I have nothing against that uh, in principle. Um, in fact, I like that it kind of carries on like there's a song right now on the radio that samples a Paul Simon tune from the seventies. Huh. And like when I first heard it, I was like, okay, that's, is he sampling Paul Simon or is he just blatantly ripping him off? <laughs> so I looked it up. turns out it's a sample. And I was like, well, you know, this new song is like, I, 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 I think it's kind of horrible, but like there's no de- denying that that baseline and horn hook that they sampled are pretty great. And then you like you, you hear a lot of eight, 70s and 80s songs being being sampled songs or just sounds and it's like well it's that kind of music's being kept alive in this new pop music too so that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I think that, that that's like you talked about sort of all the industrial processes that have come to bear on music that have maybe diminished the appreciation of them which I totally relate to. And I think, you know, like you see in the film industry where there's no new ideas and they're always remaking things or rebooting things, or you get sort of like uh, movies that evoke like a certain era, like how Joker sort of evokes taxi driver and seventies yep. like cinema. And I think that's, that's at play in, in like the impulse to sample and take things from before as like, it's to meant to evoke uh, or take like the emotion or the vibe of something and then just incorporate it and make it an element of your creation, which I have no problem with, you know, like it's, it, it's cool. I think it's, there's been so much cool sampling stuff done over the years. Um, when it's super blatant and not very imaginative, I, I, I don't like it as much, but, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's a kick a little bit when you're hearing something, listening to a song and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. I recognize that, you know, and it kind of keys in something. Yeah, it's true. I remember I had a job at a restaurant once and this guy, I, I was playing a, a playlist, an MP3 playlist off my iPod. And this, one of my coworkers said, oh, Malcolm, it's so cool. You you just play all the original songs that 
like the hip hop hits sample. Huh. And I was like, I totally didn't even mean to do that. Like, I, I didn't even know I was doing that. Yeah. It's just, it's just that like I and whoever sampled those hooks, you know, heard the same, the same greatness in, in those grooves. Yeah, you can't deny it. Like, you know, most of the stuff that, uh, or a lot of the stuff that gets sampled in music, like the 70s soul stuff and whatever, I mean, it's just, God, that's some of the best music music that's ever been made, right? So not yeah. for nothing that people went to those records and that era and just dug deep and incorporated it into what they were doing. Yeah. Well, Marty, I feel like I could go on all day just, uh, you know, shooting the shit about music with you. Yeah. But uh, I've got a, I've got a family that I've got to get back to. And all you've, good. Uh, you've got, you've got your stuff to do. Yeah. So I hope so that we can, uh, you, we can, you know, meet up in real life sometime and, and uh, continue the conversation. But it's been, uh, it's, it's been great catching up with you. Awesome. Likewise, man. Yeah, it would be good to see you again. We're not that far apart geographically, uh, geographically, so it's something that could happen. And now that, you know, we seem to be coming to the beginning of the end of this uh, crazy time in history, then, you know, who knows, right? Yeah. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Yes, absolutely. Well, all the best to your family and you, man. And it's, uh, again, thanks for asking me to do this. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we only touched on this very superficially, but uh, Marty wrote something recently uh, connecting his own musical journey to the recent residential school discoveries and the larger reconciliation project in Canada. It's a very powerful piece, and uh, I put a link to it on the podcast homepage, so uh, go give it a read. It's worth it. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next time for more What Is This Music? <laughs>